You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Hey friends, welcome to American Sex, a podcast dedicated to normalizing conversations about pleasure and alternative sexual expression by challenging those puritanical backward ass ideals we have here in the U.S. This is episode 99 of American Sex Podcast, and I'm Sunny Megatron. My awesome co-host is Ken Melvoin-Berg, who you'll be hearing from soon, and we're sexuality educators, pleasure advocates, and kinky perverts too. So this week we are diving into sex research and oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, I'm an atheist and not oh my God, oh my science, oh my science. It is fascinating. Our guest conversation is with Dr. Nicole Prousey. She's a clinical scientist who studies primary rewards, aka sex, using neuroscience and physiology. She trained at the Kinsey Institute and graduated with a PhD in clinical science from Indiana University, Bloomington. She completed her clinical internship at Boston Consortium with Addictions Research Fellowship at Harvard University. She's also a licensed psychologist in California. Dr. Prousey believes laboratory studies are important as compared to surveys alone because they can demonstrate causality and test the accuracy of self-report. She applies these data to promote health, such as the benefits of genital stroking, promotion of relaxation and sleep with orgasm, and meditative effects of high sexual arousal states. Her overall goal is to identify empirically supported methods for addressing problems that is endogenous, safe, and cheap, which includes reducing the shame associated with using sexual stimulation for these non-sexual applications. Whew, it's a lot, but I'm telling you, our conversation with Nicole Prousey was so eye-opening, even to us, and we know it's going to be to you too. So some of what we covered, we talked about her sexual biotech company called Liberos and what they do there, like testing sexual technology to provide accurate claims about products. Plus, they do brain hacking, where they administer patient direct current stimulation, like electricity to your brain, to normalize sexual desire. We talk about her research comparing suction devices like the womanizer to traditional vibrators. And she gets to the bottom of, are they really better? Do they give you orgasms faster, better, bigger? Mm, I've done my own research, but we'll hear what she says. We also talk about her research on the sexual response cycle and, you know, how what we all learned in human sexuality, that's excitement, plateau, orgasm, and resolution, how that doesn't really explain everything that's going on. We get into the internal clitoris, vasocongestion, skeins glands, and the mystery of sexual vaginal lubrication. We also theorize about the whys behind the anecdotal information that the clitoral glands is most sensitive at the 10 o'clock and two o'clock positions. If you've ever been in any of Ken and my pleasing the pussy classes, we talk a lot about that. Dr. Prousey tells us the very specific laboratory definition of an orgasm and the surprising finding that, especially in people with vulvas, what we think is an orgasm is very different and why. She tells us about post-orgasmic illness syndrome, debunks the gender differences in sexuality we've all been taught were absolute facts, 
and a bunch of other stuff. This like this isn't even the half of it. This conversation is so juicy. We talk about so much. All you sex nerds and you sex geeks listening to this episode, this is going to be like a wet dream to you. And speaking of sex geeks and sex nerds, if you're an existing or aspiring sexuality educator, I want you to listen up right now. Grab a pen. You need to know this information. I've got a free resource for you. There's a Sex Educator Skillshare online conference coming up soon, and it's being organized by the fabulous, amazing Ducky Doolittle. I'll have the link to this information in our show notes at americansexpodcast.com. But if you're trying to scribble it down real fast, it's sextoyradio.com slash sex-educator-skill-share dash conference. It's a lot. Just go look at our show notes. So this is going to be taking place every Sunday from September 15th to November 11th, 2019. Right now, organization of this free online conference is just getting underway. So go to the website I gave you. There is a call for presenter proposals going on right now. And this free conference also needs volunteers and sponsors. If you're willing to help out, you know where to go. Go to that link. And if you want to attend, again, it's absolutely free. Keep your eye on that website and you'll get all the updates. Now, sex educator training isn't always financially or geographically accessible to everyone. So this is a very rare event that it's free and open to all. I'm going to be volunteering my time to help with this conference, and you can too, even if that's just tweeting out the link and letting people know that this is happening. That alone would make a world of difference. And again, as new things are announced about this Skillshare, I'm going to let you know about them right here. So one other quick thing, I need a favor from you, American fuckers. I know you love me, right? Okay, so when you reach 10,000 followers on Instagram, it unlocks a bunch of really cool features. And these features, like the swipe up link and Insta stories and a bunch of other stuff, they're really, really helpful if you're a business like me. So I'm about 70 followers away from hitting the 10,000 mark. And if we're not connected on Instagram already, I'd love for you to follow me at just sunny Megatron. And I think you're going to enjoy following too. I post sexuality related things, but also other related subjects pertaining to mental health, healthy relationships, feminist stuff, LGBTQ plus issues, all sorts of things. Also, got to tell you this thing. Did you know I'm going to be teaching at the Firewoman Retreat? It takes place in San Diego, September 29th to October 1st, 2019. Firewoman is a unique three-day event designed to help women break through the things that hold them back from being who they really are as sexual people. It includes transformative teachings, play shops, evening events by firelight, and powerful connection with other women who are also on this journey of sexual evolution. This is an epic three-day experiential sexuality retreat hosted by Amy Jo Goddard. It combines the power of healing and ritual, hands-on skill building, creative play and dress up, spectacular evening events, and life-changing inner transformations. To find out more, head on over to firewomanretreat.com slash sunny. Okay, American fuckers, are you ready to completely geek out, calibrate that brain? There's so much in this conversation. I really love it. Here is Dr. Nicole Prousey. (laughs) 
and we're, we're super excited. So let's start with, tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, so Nikki Prowsey, and I trained as a clinical scientist. That's what my PhD is in. Uh, so that means I specialized, in my case, in neuroscience uh, and statistics. And I study human sexuality and uh, specifically sexual motivation issues. Now, you founded a company called Liberos. And I did. You, you, yep. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what you do there? And are, like, are you still the, the, the head cheese of Liberos? <laughs> the head cheese, uh, the only cheese at times, and then some. <laughs> sometimes have uh, many mini cheese. Uh, I don't know, Babels or something. <laughs> but they, uh, yeah, so I had no intention of forming a company and no desire to be a CEO type person ever. But I was at UCLA and uh, had a contract there and got a grant to do some work that was so controversial, they refused to accept the money. And so I said, well, how am I going to do this? I think the science is important and it's strong. And, you know, we have we have funding for it. So I created a company to take in the uh, grant from this nonprofit foundation and did the work on my own and figuring out how to make that go. So we're still mostly funded by nonprofit research grants, but also have some contract work and have a few services as well. Now, tell me a little bit about brain hacking. <laughs> yeah. So there are a few things we do around kind of brain hacking issues. And one is, you know, in the past, uh, neuroscientists, for the most part, measure what comes out of the brain passively. We have you do something, you know, look at porn or uh, stimulate yourself in the rare case and uh, look what comes out with electroencephalography or EEG or with a functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI. It turns out you can turn that around. You can put energy into the brain and that's really, really useful for figuring out different functional um, components and networks. Because when you're just sitting there poking it and looking at what comes out, uh, you'd like to be able to turn that around, you know, and actually like <laughs> poke it back, you know, aggravate uh, that is either increase the activity or decrease the activity of different brain areas and then see what happens. So part of our quote unquote brain hacking is using brain stimulation and we use uh, primarily two forms. That's transcranial magnetic stimulation and direct current stimulation to change activity in different brain regions. That is awesome. So you actually, one of the things that uh, Sonny and I are into BDSM and we teach a class on electric play. And <laughs> this is oh, not God. the kind of electric play we do at all, by the way. <laughs> do kids, not so. put tens on your head. Oh, <laughs> damn. I was ready to be Especially like, Especially on your temples or on your eyeballs. Like, no, none of that stuff. Let's just start there. I know what you have. Don't do that. <laughs> so, it, so this is not like EST or anything like that. What you're doing is just like very, very small amounts of direct current are going in and they're stimulating parts of the brain. Is that kind of the gist of it? Uh, well, there are different forms, and so the two main forms, the transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, is actually a therapeutic device. Uh, it's FDA-approved for treatment of treatment-resistant depression, and that uses uh, magnetic pulses, actually, usually in a figure-eight uh, configuration, so that where there's the cones of activity converge and the magnetic fields is kind of where the brain activity is altered. Um, and then the other devices, direct current stimulation, those are found in a lot of consumer grade devices and they're a little more scary because, you know, when we measure those, they don't always output what they say they do. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of work trying to figure out how much these things actually do what they claim to do, if they're really getting into the brain. And if so, how does that vary from person to person? Does it matter the direction of the current? Like there's still a lot of pretty basic questions 
about how effective DCS even is uh, at doing some basic functions. Wow, that is, I mean, you, you really do have one of the coolest jobs out there. And one of the last things I wanted to talk about with your, uh, like, with your, what you're doing with Liberos is you do some sort of sexual technology testing. So is this yeah. like taking in uh, vibrators and different toys that we use uh, to create an orgasm and you're testing materials or the circuit board or kind of, like what's, what's the idea there? We are more a human factors testing. So one thing I used to see a lot um, was in what they would call sexual technology is really usually just some permutation on the vibrator. And that's fine. You know, it's no problem having things that you can give people options, but it wasn't really innovative to me. You know, I was like to innovate to me means to really have something that's entirely new. So for example, uh, I don't have any funding from the womanizer, but uh, clitoral suction devices um, are really a kind of distinct physiological entity that you can test for their differences in contrast with a clitoral vibrator. Like uh, the womanizer? Yeah, like the, so comparing, for example, there's one study comparing the suction devices to the vibratory devices in terms of like their long-term impact on uh, orgasm consistency. You have to tell me what you found because, uh, you know, I've been conducting my own informal research here at my house. <laughs> um, and I want to see if your research lines up with mine. So what, but, really, what did you find? Yeah, so this actually wasn't my study, but uh, nonetheless cool. And so this group did it on spinal cord injured population and basically found those that were using the suction devices kind of had improved uh, sexual function longer term outside the use of the stimulating device itself oh. and didn't find any evidence for like numbing which sometimes people worry about with vibratory devices so yeah that's one uh, example of one way you could contrast uh, the testing I've done I had a project with Love Honey uh, which is a UK sex toy company by um, contract it's what's called an investigator initiated research so that means um, they pay me to study it, but then I own the data so that I don't have to worry that they're going to say, don't tell people that this happened. You oh, that's know? Cool. Um, they're it's important to work with. Yeah, it's a good uh, good ethics practice as well. And uh, so in their case, we had uh, 20 women come in twice and stimulate themselves through to orgasm in the lab while we recorded their brain response and other responses, uh, including anal contractions either when they used their hand to get there or when they used one of the company's devices that they wanted tested. And so, you know, we looked at a variety of different factors, kind of what their experience with the uh, masturbation was, how long their uh, physical climax was, um, if there were differences in contractions. Uh, so there were a lot of moving parts of that. But it was exactly, you know, this is a great kind of collaboration because that study helped us develop a device that we subsequently got funding for from the National Organization of Rare Diseases to study post-orgasmic illness syndrome. So it's like, even though that was a company, you know, kind of a commercial interest, um, it helped us do something that is then useful in the public health domain. Oh, that's really cool. Huh. Yeah. It's like <laughs> so, you know, what I find really interesting and for, you know, the, the listeners listening along, you're in the science world, so you know. Um, but, you know, for the listeners listening along may not realize how difficult it is to conduct 
good research on sexuality. And a lot of what we as sex educators like Ken and I, we have a lot of either old information, flawed information, or information that's kind of anecdotal because no one really studied it. And this is Mm -hmm. kind of what we guess. So these are the (laughs) things that we teach. And then some of the things that I found out that you've been studying, I was like, what? You know, like, for instance, the sexual response cycle, anyone who's taken uh, you know, human sexuality class or whatnot in college, you know, to satisfy your psychology uh, requirement knows, oh, yeah, it's excitement, plateau, orgasm and resolution. That's what we've been taught. But mm-hmm. you've been doing some other research that is maybe giving a new face to this. Possibly. We're finding some data we did not expect. Um, and the problem is it's very, very rare for well, first of all, you know, 90%, maybe 95% of sex research is surveys. And surveys are great for certain things, but, you know, at some point, uh, if people can't report or won't report <laughs> information, you have to test them. You know, you really need a laboratory um, to get information that people may not be able or willing to report. So it's quite rare to actually test those response models. We just kind of assume they're theoretical and uh, broadly use them to guide definitions of dysfunction. But one of the things we were finding is there seems to be a real transition when you test people all the way through your sexual response, quote unquote, to through to climax, which is really, really rare to do. It's only a few labs in the world that do it. Uh, was when we had people start to get sexually aroused and then we said, okay, okay, that's fine. Go ahead and try and have a climax. Their physiology changed drastically at that point, like many, many minutes before they would have a climax later on. And so, exactly. (laughs) So, you know, we're seeing this is really easy to see even at the single subject level, which is unusual in physiology, but it's remarkable. And so now we're trying to understand, you know, does this generalize to men? Does this you know, uh, hold true if uh, somebody has a shorter or longer uh, latency? You know, that's once we say go for it. What some of them come right away. You know, it can be hard to to see that phase. And so that's part of what we'll be looking for in our latest uh, study we just gotten approved for. And to see like, can we continue to see this shift? And if that's the case, then you might argue. For example, in Masters and Johnson's model, the plateau phase doesn't capture a separate phase that occurs before orgasm that may be really important for function. And the, exactly, so that, that would be important. And it makes a lot of sense to me, too, because you know often people have a dissociation between problems of arousal and problems of climax. That is, they may say, I get aroused just fine, but I like, can't get over the bump. I don't know what's happening. You know, it's, I don't get it. Or, you know, I'm totally, uh, you know, I, like if I get aroused, orgasm's fine, I can get there, but I'm just not interested most of the time. Like those two things seem to be pretty well dissociated. And this may be why. That is, if they're really different brain states, um, really different parts of the kind of sympathetic nervous system engagement, then it would make sense. You know, you might, it might even be skill-based where you're quite good, for example, at getting yourself going, but then have difficulty transitioning into a later phase that precedes climax. Huh. Now, of course, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, oh my God, do I have to improve my technique? Could <laughs> <laughs> that be it? I don't know. Yeah, well, this is, of course, one of the fears I have in doing this kind of work is, you know, from a physiologist's perspective, like, I have to define orgasm some kind of way. <laughs> you know, I can't. 
Um, and so I know sometimes we clash, for example, with feminists or people who you know, have really been defending female sex for a long time uh, because they don't want to constrain people's understanding and definition of their pleasure, which I totally understand. Except, you know, if I, for example, I want to say, well, what's the health benefit? You know, what's the, what are the inflammatory markers that change with physical climax? Well, then I can't just use women's subjective definition anymore. I need the physical documentation, you know, what was happening in the body. So, you know, I can see coming up in the, as we start to publish these things, there's going to be some tension there. Um, but indeed, like we don't mean to say it's a skill you need to acquire and, oh, you can get better. It's more just if we understand the process a little bit better, then you might choose to do something in a different way or in a way that's better for whatever you're trying to do. If that's come more quickly, <laughs> then maybe that's useful for you. So how, as a scientist, do you define orgasm? Eight to 12 contractions that start 0.8 seconds apart and increase in latency until their termination that occur throughout the pelvic pelvic musculature. I'm counting, I'm counting in my head, like, are there eight to 10 usually? Now I'm going to have to go find out later. So you're both a neuroscientist and a physiologist. There's a, and there's a question Sonny and I have that's completely an anecdotal thing that we have talked about for years, but we have um, talked to a, a lot of people in our lectures and we uh, found that a lot of people have more increased response on the clitoris at the two o'clock and 10 o'clock positions. And we have a pet theory, if this is true, as to why it may be. Obviously, there's never been any real studies on it, but I, we suspect it may be the dorsal clitoral nerve. Do you know anybody who's done any research into the exact function of that nerve and how it relates to orgasm? Uh, I don't. And it's largely a function of people not following through to climax. But we also haven't divided up the clitoris very often in our physiological functional research. So, like, we know how things are innervated pretty well down there at this point, but not necessarily, like, when they start to become engorged, then what? You know, like, how much more sensitive do things become? Um, or, like, some people talk about clitoral retroversion at climax. Like, I've never seen that. I would probably be the one to have seen it. <laughs> but, um, you know, so there are some of these kind of reports or claims that, it's just exactly like difficult to know. I have my suspicion because you're not the only one to mention that. We uh, do research on orgasmic meditation and they do stimulation also, I think at the two o'clock position, like it's to the side of the clitoris. Yeah, right. And part of my suspicion with that is, you know, the portion of the clitoris that's external, of course, is not just the glands. Um, we also have a shaft. It's part of the, you know, emergent corpora. That is, you know, we, we basically have the structures of the penis that have just been fitted uh, mostly within our body and some of it's external. So it could be if you're going for a two o'clock kind of area that you're capturing more of the clitoral shaft in your stroke. And that's just a guess, but that physiology made sense to me. So I was like, well, maybe that's why they're <laughs> having luck with the two o'clock is they're not just sitting on top of the glands that some people find uncomfortable or too sensitive, but they're actually capturing uh, more of the indirect stimulation. And uh, Justine Schober did some research on that years ago, looking at just ask women, you know, from this diagram, you know, coloring kind of where you stimulate to experience orgasm. And women actually don't pick the clitoral glands. They uh, are most commonly stimulating uh, the skin above, kind of across and with the clitoral shaft. So more indirect stimulation than direct is most common. 
Interesting. And for, for listeners listening along, like, what? As much tissue as the penis? What? Uh, go Google <laughs> the internal clitoris. And uh, yeah, and I'll put stuff in the show notes, more information. Yeah, so the more we, your we, mind just yeah. got blown. Don't worry, I got you. <laughs> so one of the other things we definitely wanted to talk to you about is that you have done some uh, research, and I believe it's just fairly recent, on uh, vasocongestion and the skein's gland? <laughs> yeah, so I'm starting to ask questions about the skeins because it's in my way. <laughs> <laughs> so real quick for oh, listeners, yeah, for listeners what is the skeins gland? Thank you. Uh, well, so we're not entirely sure what the function is, but there are uh, additional openings in the area of the vulva um, they're typically not something you can see, but some scientists claim they can visualize them. Uh, so if you're really poking around there super close for some reason, you might <laughs> see additional openings. And these have been related to orgasmic capacity in some small studies. So, for example, they're suggesting uh, people who have multiple orgasms or who report having ejaculation have more openings in these glands. So the opening count varies as well. And it's not clear what the function is in women, uh, to me. And so that's been something I've been starting to ask uh, my colleagues, you know, what's your th- latest theory and what's your thought on this? Uh, because I am curious if it's, you know, maybe the equivalent of a pre-ejaculate that's helping provide lubricant. So, for example, with the way vaginal lubrication is formed, it's internal to the vagina, and that's the way physiology books write about it too. You know, the lubricant comes from the coalescence of uh, droplets uh, that are squeezed through the vaginal wall of vasocongestion. That's how it's written. I'm like, but the vulva gets wet. Then where's that coming from? Nice. <laughs> you know, like, where, like, don't tell me it's just coming from the vagina because it's not just coming from the vagina. And I was like, maybe the skeins are contributing lubricant in the vulva area. And it seems reasonable to me. I'm totally speculating, but, uh, you know, it could be. And then the basal congestion is more what we've studied directly most commonly and in what sex is that? labs. What's, what is that in certain so terms? Basal congestion is uh, the, the same thing that happens in the penis havers. That is their blood going into the corpora, the bodies, uh, the tissues in that area. The main difference is... Uh, Women, people who have a vulva and vagina don't have a stricture that prevents the blood from flowing back out. So we don't have the same rigidity. Um, So guys have a stricture at the base of their penis that causes the blood, once it's in, to uh, feel rigid enough that they can then penetrate something should they choose to do that. Uh, And women have that difference. But there's also debate about how the blood gets in. That is, there's a theory called vasomotion um, that is whether the, it's really just like a bunch of kind of capillary action, uh, you know, blood being sopped into these corpora or these clitoral bodies and, uh, vulvar tissues, or if it might actually be different sizes of vessels, uh, opening and closing, uh, which just shift in terms of their proportion as more blood gets in there. But basically whatever's happening, <laughs> The more blood that goes into the vaginal walls, um, we try and pick up through backscattered light in our measurement devices. So we shine light out into the vagina, we measure how much comes back, and we assume that the more blood that's in the walls, the more light is reflected back to our instrument. The end. Okay, so (laughs) I'm purely thinking logistics here. I'm putting myself in the mind of one of your research subjects where I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm in the middle of getting it on and, you know, my, my walls are filled with blood and then you're going in there and like, like, how do you physically look 
while all of this is happening? <laughs> uh, well, so we don't have any protocols for intercourse right now. So uh, usually we have access to the vagina and we use something called a vaginal photoplethysmograph, which is if you've ever been to the doctor's office and they put that thing on your finger with a little light in it. I was just going to add um, the pulse ox in That's a plethysmograph. Okay. So we just take that out. We stick it. So I actually have a 3D printed device in my lab. We 3D print the base. We stick the plethysmograph in the base, put it in your vagina. Um, so that's one way. <laughs> you can also uh, put those anywhere else. So uh, some people have looked at the labia for plethysmography. I really like temperature measures um, because they're absolute. So that means I like with the the blood flow, it's really hard to compare between two people. You know, there's really no norms. There's nothing that I can say. Like if you sat down and someone, another woman person sat down next to you and we put the two in and you read four millivolts and she read 40 millivolts, we would know nothing about your vaginal response or your tone or anything like that because they're relative measures. So it's the temperature gives us the way to compare absolute measures. So, for example, uh, women that have diabetes have colder labia. It's part of the broad pattern of neuropathy where they don't have blood flow that's as good to extremities, including labia. Oh, interesting. So is that kind of like the scrotum? It kind of, yeah. There's, there's their analogs in some ways. Uh, but, yeah, they're external structures. And just like they tend to have trouble with their hands and feet, it appears that they are slightly colder in the labia as well. Do you love love? Well, then you need to know about Audible Escape. It's a monthly subscription service that provides unlimited listening to thousands of love stories, and there's nothing else like it. Audible Escape isn't the Audible subscription you're probably used to hearing about. This is a standalone service with unlimited access to over 18,000 love stories and romance books from best-selling authors. The cool thing is, Audible Escape also offers original love stories that you can't get anywhere else. They're from authors like Emma Chase, Lauren Blakely, and Laura Lynn Page. Audible Escape also includes stories narrated by captivating celebrity voices like Blair Underwood, Dermot Mulroney, and Jesse Metcalf. Love stories have the ability to whisk you away no matter where you are. And with Audible Escape, you can do just that on your commute, working out, in the office, at the grocery store. Heck, even if you're sitting on the toilet, you can pop in those earbuds and cue up Audible Escape to love some love. And lucky for you, you can get lost in unlimited love stories for an entire month absolutely free. Yeah, if you visit audible.com slash sunny, you'll get your first month of Audible Escape free. After that, you got unlimited access to the entire library for just $12.95 a month. And if you're already an Audible or Kindle Unlimited member, your Audible Escape membership will be just $6.95 a month. Picture this. Dean Walker is hot, 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 and he has a wild one-night stand with Lainey Burroughs. But later, Lainey is shocked to discover her sizzling summer fling is also her son's new math teacher. But that's nothing compared to the fact that, surprise, she is pregnant. Are they going to become parents together? What's going to happen? Well... You can find out by getting your free month of Audible Escape by going to audible.com slash sunny. And by the way, I know you want to find out what happens with Dean and Lainey. That's Emma Chase's getting plate. Go look it up. Again, that's 
A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash S-U-N-N-Y. Okay, so in your research, um, you know, just like we had said, okay, there's a sexual response cycle that we all learned and we all and, and you're discovering that may not be the thing. So through your years of research, what are some common things that that we all think that you realize are completely bunk that you've uncovered uh, through your studies? Uh, I mean, so the a lot of them have to do with gender differences. So I'm have become a big proponent over the years of trying to reduce our talk about gender differences because I don't think in many cases they're physiologically supported. Uh, the idea that men are visual and women tend to be less visual. Uh, it turns out as soon as you account for their sex drive, um, that it wasn't really gender per se, you know, it's not like men are Mars and women are from Venus, that old story. Mm-hmm. It's if you find women who have high drive, they look a lot like guys who have lower drive within their gender. So is that <laughs> so, a hormonal thing? Like it's just like this is more testosterone regardless of how the person identifies? Not testosterone. So as long as you don't have a disease process, testosterone isn't related to sex drive um, levels as far as anyone's seen. Um, but just the drive in general. So if you're someone who you know has a higher sex drive, you tend to be more responsive to everything, including visual stimuli. <laughs> Oh, so it's all about Scorpios. Okay, I got it. Yes. <laughs> That's what I meant. <laughs> it's because I'm a Scorpio. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so. yeah, so the other is like, uh, we are just finding out um, that like half of the women we tested are uh, reporting having a climax and then we can't find physical evidence of it. Uh, this is a huge problem for us because I thought we were just helping time mark what was going on in the lab. Turns out uh, a lot of folks either aren't aware or having some other kind of experience. And so to me, that says like, we should never do survey research about orgasms again with women. <laughs> like, there's, It's interesting they, because like, I've heard people say like, you know, and and I see this a lot in people with vaginas, especially, you know, younger adults that are just starting to explore their sexuality. You see the question, how do I know if I've had an orgasm? You know, yep. I think I maybe I have. I don't know that, you know, feels kind of funny, good in my pants. But is that an orgasm? And the common response I hear, which I don't agree with, by the way, is, oh, if you had an orgasm, you know, it. you know, yeah, yeah, that's. You're not, you're seeing that not at all in your research. No, and part of what worries me about that as well is, you know, so some of this has just been like, te- you know, I uh, flew to Europe to test women who claimed they had tons of orgasms at one point. And some of those women, you know, we tested in the context of a show. So who knows about <laughs> replicability, but they, uh, you know, the, it would, those women who were claiming to have lots of them were the ones who had no contractions. And so what that tells me is maybe the genders aren't so different in terms of multiple orgasm capability. That is the woman I tested who had contractions with her two orgasms had the longest latency between them, like several minutes. And so it made me suspicious that maybe what's happening is you know, the women who claim to have the super high functioning, like lots and lots of climaxes, whenever they want them at the drop of a hat, um, are having some 
some type of pleasurable experience, you know, knock yourself out. <laughs> like, don't worry about, you know, the physical definition or not if you're enjoying it. But, but from my perspective, that's a problem. You know, there, if it's not an actual physical climax, I need to know uh, so I can, you know, accurately make attributions in my work. And, you know, so maybe it's the case that if you limit the orgasm definition to the contracting ones, then men and women look very, very similar. And we're gonna stop having this language about, oh, women have multiples and men generally don't, and um, you know, that they have this refractory period. I think they might be more similar oh, than we think. Ask. You stole the question out of my brain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm already there. Neuroscience, brain. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do, mind reading. <laughs> Just me and uh, Elon Musk. <laughs> And you're not too far away from him right now, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, little does he know I'm coming for his uh, sexual stimulation next. <laughs> so what kind of new research do you have coming up? We have two big projects, and one of them is the uh, one I just briefly mentioned before on post-orgasmic illness syndrome. That is, guys who report every time they have a climax, regardless of context, they have flu-like symptoms two to seven days after the event. Uh, that does not discourage them typically. <laughs> they I, remain I, actually, both active. of us are looking really confused, right? Like, as, <laughs> I've been a sex educator for 30 years. I've never heard of this. Oh, yeah. Well, it's funded by the National Organization of Rare Diseases. <laughs> so, ah, okay. Yeah, so it's relatively rare. Um, and the theories around it so far have been largely autoimmune theories. That is, there's something in the ejaculate that's causing them to have an allergic reaction. But... There are some reasons to think that's not the case, and that's what we're testing, is trying to understand um, you know, what it is that's actually different about the guys who are having this terrible experience. And uh, hopefully, luckily for us, uh, we are recruiting folks who are actually willing to come in and get sick for us, uh, that is to have a climax, even though they know they'll ultimately be dealing with the fluish <laughs> type of oh, symptoms nice. for a couple of weeks. But oh. then what's really cool about that is we have to have a control group. So we also get in a bunch of guys who aren't affected and we will get some of the first data on immune response around climax ever recorded. Like some of the biology, the samples we're taking both blood and saliva as well. Uh, and some of these have just never been investigated before. So we, we don't know what really to expect in terms of like inflammatory markers pre and post climax. Wow. You do have the coolest job ever. And how long does a, a research study like this typically take? Like, will you be studying this for years and we'll totally forget we had this conversation by the time the results <laughs> come out or. Yeah, that's the pace of most science, unfortunately. But this one, the grant is only for a year. So we have to burn it quick. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So this one will be unusually fast, I hope. Um, but as ever with science, you know, we do peer reviewed publications. And so those typically will take months. And then the, Second large project we're doing is we just completed a big multi-year study on uh, orgasmic meditation. And in that one, we were just looking immediately pre-post. So like what happens to your brain during orgasmic meditation and how does that impact your focus, your emotional reactivity, factors like that. And we have a bunch of papers under review that should be coming out soon about that study. Um, I have a question then, about that. Are you talking about orgasmic meditation just as an act or are you talking about the group orgasmic meditation 
No. So I know there are some businesses that have popped up around it, and that's not – we don't work with them. Okay. Thank God. So, good. All yeah. right. because <laughs> um, <laughs> we were both just beginning to roll our eyes a little so, bit. We, we did a segment on them for our show, Sex of Sunny Megatron, and it was one of the most frightening things I've ever come across. Yeah, well, no, there are some uh, folks that are interested in it just as a general practice. My sense is it's been around for a long time as a as a thing people do <laughs> outside yeah. of the monetization. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, the next step is we have a large grant to do a clinical trial with them. So we're uh, soon going to be recruiting uh, couples to come out to uh, learn orgasmic meditation for the first time. Or another form of meditation and uh, look at their biomarkers kind of during the process of learning it at this retreat in Northern California. And then we'll follow up with them in uh, one month and two months to see if they're retaining benefits that they uh, experience, hopefully, <laughs> during the retreat. Now, okay, so I'm going to put myself in the minds of some of the listeners because I know some people who are listening, especially the ones who are in the California area are like, how do I get out on this? How do I be a research <laughs> participant? So how do you select your research subjects? We have to go through ethics board reviews first. So all of these uh, are regulated federally um, and have to meet certain guidelines for like biohazard management and make sure they're you know, we're properly screening folks who might have clinical reactions to uh, learning orgasm meditation or learning another mindfulness practice. So we have to go through all that process first. So I can't say for certain, like this is going to be the inclusion exclusion criteria, but usually we will um, post on our social media accounts and we'll work with groups um, who do organize orgasmic meditation, you know, retreats or things like that to disseminate to their members or people who may be interested uh, depending on who exactly we're looking for. Uh, in this case, this uh, study will uh, focus on people who have a particular type of uh, problem. So people who are female identified and their partner, partner can be any gender, don't care. And uh, But when we get to the nuts and bolts of it, you know, and have it all worked out with our ethics review, um, we'll be able to say for sure, like this is the kind of person we're looking for, and here's how you get involved. You have to go through a bunch of screening process uh, to make sure we're likely to help you, and then we offer a little bit of pay with this one in addition. So basically people listening who, who want to get in on this, follow your social media and see when you have studies come up and what the criteria are and, and all that. Yeah, and we tend to be, like, when we're recruiting, we won't, we'll be not recruiting for, like, two years, and we'll be, like, heavily recruiting for six months. <laughs> so it's a kind of fits and starts, but, yeah, it's a good place to find it is we'll, we're always going to post on our social. That's one place we always go for sure. Okay, and what is your social? Oh, that would help. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, on my Twitter, I'm Nicole R. Prousey, so N-I-C-O-L-E-R-P-R-A-U-S-E, um, and then we also have a Facebook for my company, Libros, L-I-B-E-R-O-S. Um, and yeah, then we just do kind of standard ads. And as you know, some uh, sexuality ads get constrained oh, yes. in terms of what is permitted on these different platforms. Oh, so, yeah. you know, if we end up on Instagram, we'll do that <laughs> if we need to. <laughs> Uh, we'll see how that goes, but it's sex. Uh, if it makes you feel any better, any folks who are doing uh, kind of sexual uh, products, the labs get blocked too. The scientists get our ads blocked. They've been ser- like actually reviewed by federally regulated boards, and we still get rejected from some of these Facebook platforms. 
it's awful. We do too. Yeah, it is absolutely awful. So, all right, I have one final question that I'm just totally curious about. I know from Ken and I, because sex education is our business, it kind of gives us, a, I don't know, a different spin in our personal lives. But whether it's for you or your research team or just people involved in what you do, do you all feel like you have... I don't know, a different outlook on your own private life or has it made it better or is it like, oh, work again? <laughs> what has this done for you personally? Uh, yeah, it's really a mixed bag. It depends on the audience, of course. But I will tell you, one of my favorite events to do is I go to these things about once every other month that uh, they prohibit you from talking about your job. And I love it. That's, that's <laughs> actually kind of awesome. As much as I love my job and talking about it, you know, I have answered the same questions about the G spot, the same questions. About the, um, somebody, oh, how do you get people? How do you know? I can't believe you have people come in and do that all the time. And I totally appreciate the curiosity. You know, it's not um, nothing personal <laughs> against those folks. But oh my God, yeah, it's a. Uh, it's a relief to not have to go there and to not have to be the sex person because uh, you get we, a lot of assumptions of made about who you are. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of feel the same way when we have to do uh, sex toy reviews, especially like when it's something we have to do as opposed to something we want to do. Yeah. And, and I know how it is. It's like when you go into any, you could be at like, your mother-in-law's church group and someone gets wind that you do <laughs> anything professionally with sex, you get all of these questions and you're like, you're the last people I thought would be asking me all these around <laughs> around you, you know. You can't well, even go to McDonald's without being like, oh, so can you tell me a little bit about... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I always say. Like, it's hard to make friends sometimes because you leave a two-hour conversation and you're like, I didn't get to ask you any questions. You know, like, like I don't know yeah. anything about you because you grilled me the whole time. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, but, people in our personal lives that meet us, keep this in mind. Talk about the weather. Dr. Prowsey, ask her about cats or yes, coffee please. or cute puppies. Yes, yes. I'll take it. Well, this has been awesome, and we are definitely going to keep an eye on your upcoming research as well as our American fuckers, our listeners. Go ahead and check the show notes if you missed those social media handles so you can find out about all of the latest and greatest research or call for research participants or whatever, you know, whatever interests you. And this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Prowse. I appreciate the questions here. They were fun. Informed. Great. <laughs> Thank you. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to American Sex. To keep up with Ken and I, we'll first make sure you watch our TV show, Sex with Sunny Megatron, on Showtime. Then visit SunnyMegatron.com. There you can learn more about us, read our blog, peruse our workshop calendar, or hire us. For what? Well, either for private coaching, or to book us to teach at your event or university, or as sex and relationship writers for your publication. Oh, and don't forget, we're on social media, too. I'm the super social one, so you can find me as Sunny Megatron on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, my YouTube channel, and a bunch of other places. But if you want to get me on Snapchat, you got to look for Sunny underscore Megatron, and you can follow Ken on Twitter at at tag PsyChicken. That's P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-K-E-N. Also, please support us by shopping with the affiliates and sponsors from our breaks. 
And if you contribute to our Patreon, we're going to love you forever. Well, we're going to love you forever anyway, but just go with it. Lastly, if you like this broadcast, tell people about it. Tweet it, Facebook status it, and rate it on iTunes and other platforms. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week on American Sex.